Louie, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Rose? Where we're going, we don't need Rose. No. I am your father. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. You're listening to After the Ending, the only film podcast where we tell you what happens after the ending of your favorite films. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Spring and Phil Edwards. Hello and welcome to After the Ending. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, today's show is about two things, nostalgia and wanton killing. That's all you need in life, really. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, really, I think, you know, as the holiday season is upon us, you know, what more does a family need but to curl up by a fireplace with, you know, some some happy-go-lucky kids and that that warm glow of nostalgia and machine gun fire rapidly killing terrorists? I mean, I I think those are both things that, you know, families can get into. Yeah, ho, 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 now I have a machine gun, and that's not the film we're doing. (laughs) That's true. We are not doing the Die Hard, the greatest Christmas movie of all time. But uh, we're not even doing Christmas movies yet. That's a future episode. Yes, so uh, keep on listening to future episodes, everybody. But this week, no, we're going to be doing the films that people have wanted us to do. Well, one film in particular that you've all wanted us to do for a long, long time. It's one of the best action films of all time, featuring the best cast of all time. It is, of course, 1990s. Navy SEALs. Yes, you might be overselling that a bit. <laughs> I, I may have sensed a slight hint of sarcasm in your tone, but you and I both really enjoy Navy SEALs, yeah, so let's yeah, not pretend yeah. that yeah. we don't, because we do. It's, it's a really fun action flick. It's a very, you know, it's a 1990 film, and it really is stuck right in between the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. You know, it's got a bit yeah. of the 80s feel to it, but a, but a bit of that 90s sheen to it. It's a bit cheesy. It's a bit... Over the top action, but it's uh, it was a lot of fun. Yeah, and yeah. We've got and Charlie, Charlie Sheen, Michael Bean, and Bill Paxton, right, among others. That's uh, that's a good that's a good cast. Yep, yep. And then of course we're also doing another movie. Yes, we are another one which features lots of people getting shot and maimed <laughs> and missiles and everything going. It is 1993's The Sandlot. Yay, a classic family film if ever there was one. Yes, so they are quite different films, but uh, as always, that's the way we like to roll on this show. Indeed it is. And what year are we going to be talking about, Phil? We will be doing our top 10 favourite films of 1965. Very cool. So I must ask, because we're going back, well, not that far you know, in the world of cinema, but did you manage to get a full top 10 films that you've seen? You, well, tell you what, what, why don't you guess, you tell me, do you think I did or not? Over or under? Mm-hmm. Uh, just, just under, under. <laughs> just under. <laughs> I'm gonna say halfway under. No, unfortunately, I did not come up with a full uh, a full list of ten. This was definitely a this is a weak year for me. Actually, I really had a hard time. I had to scour the list pretty carefully, even to find five that I I you know remember seeing. So, uh, but even then, there was a lot of them. Like there wasn't a ton of big films in 1965. Yeah, yeah. It seems like so a lot of the ones that I that are on my I want to see list are more because I like the people involved rather than it's like oh because this is a big famous film. You're right. There was only yeah. There's only a handful of really big name, big kind of films, right? Which are sort of the ones everybody knows. But there were lots of cool smaller films, like little classic films, sci-fi, that kind of things as well, knocking about. So yeah. Oh, I look forward to hearing what you've uh, the five you've got that you've yeah. watched and the ones you want to watch as well. Yeah, I assume you have, uh, of course, found ten that you've seen. Yes, I have because uh, there's uh, yeah, there's quite a few good ones. I damn like. you, sir. Yes. <laughs> you always <laughs> you always kick my ass on those. One year you will get me. You know, you think you're versed in cinema, and then you start hosting a movie podcast, and you realize there are some gaps in your viewing history. Well, it's me as well, but it's more like over the past, you know, 
10 or 20 years there's lots of films well maybe smaller films which i just haven't seen and things which i know you've seen and things like that it all balances out mike that's why oh, we I work know. well as a team that's right that's right all right well let's kick things off with navy seals phil why don't you take us through the story and tell us what happens in that film Ooh, Navy SEALs, I certainly will. It's all about an elite Navy SEALs unit who set out to locate and destroy a stockpile of US-built Stinger missiles that have fallen into terrorist hands. They get some important information from a journalist played by John Worley Kilmer. Uh, they play a bit of golf for some reason. Uh, and some of the unit live, some die, but the mission is accomplished, the end. I would go into more detail, but that would spoil it, and why would I want to do that? Yeah, not really necessary. for It's not a plot-heavy film. Yeah, there's just lots of to and fro in different places, stuff getting blown up, sneaking around. you got Bill Paxton as the sniper. Uh, his nickname's God, which I always really like that bit in the film. At the start, when you don't realise what's going on, you just say, God, and it's... And you're going, wow, that's cool. The main characters, though, Charlie Sheen is Lieutenant Junior Dale Hawkins. Uh, Michael Bean plays Lieutenant James Curran. And then you've got a few others. You've got Bill Paxton plays Floyd Dane, who's the sniper. His nickname's God. And Dennis Haysbert is Billy also known as William Graham. And there's a few others, but uh, we'll mention them if they apply to our after the endings. Very cool. Okay, then, Mike, do you want to kick us off? What happens on your day after? All right, well, there's a weird mix of emotions among the remaining team members. While they're personally elated to have survived and also to have succeeded in their mission and killed Shahid, the terrorist, their hearts are also heavy as the mission took a major toll and resulted in the deaths of a couple of their numbers. It's a long submarine ride back to the naval base for the team. When they get back stateside, the Navy rebuilds the unit. Curran heals from his injuries, that's Michael Bean's character, and he and Hawkins are put in charge. And soon after the team is complete once again, they head out on a dangerous mission. After a successful search and destroy mission, the team flies out of Siberia under heavy fire. Their airplane makes it out in one piece, but it's heavily damaged. And somewhere over the Arctic Circle, the plane plunges into the frozen seas. Oh my God, they just don't have any luck, do they? <laughs> Listen, man, it's a dangerous job. Yeah, it is. They knew, what, they knew what they got into when they signed up for this gig. That's true. Yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I had to get out of that, that kind of job yeah. because I was just, it was doing, it was murder on my knees. Yeah, so right. I just said, I said, no, enough's enough. I can't be in the SAS anymore because my knees are killing me. Probably a wise decision. Yeah, yeah. Also, I was rubbish and really scared of everything. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, how about your day after, Phil? Okay, Hawkins and the other survivors of the mission are given a chance to clean up before being debriefed. Curran was badly injured. He's whisked away to be treated. At the debrief, the team are constantly questioned about their actions in minute detail, while a man in a dark suit sits at the back. Hawkins felt there was something off with the whole thing. The questions seemed leading as if trying to show that the SEAL team had been in error during the mission. Having enough, Hawkins stood up. What the hell's going on here? We did the mission. We are winning. And why is that damn spook here? He motioned to the suited man, who nodded and stood up. I've seen enough, said the man. They're perfect. I'll be in touch. Without another word, he left the room. Hawkins and the others were now very confused. But before they had a chance to say anything more, another soldier entered the room with some sad news. Cohen had died on the operating table. Or and did he? Day after. Ooh, bum, bum, <laughs> if, I, if I know you, Phil, <laughs> this might not be the last we see of Mr. Curran. But we'll see. I'm intrigued to see we what they're see, perfect we will for. See. Okay, then what's happening then? Uh, with them, they've just gone down into the uh, the Arctic Ocean, was it? Yes. Yes. Let's see uh, what's happening then. Well, almost 200 years later, the Navy <sighs> SEALs plane is recovered by an automated robot bearing a familiar logo, the Wayland Utani Corporation. <laughs> oh, I love it. <laughs> Most of the SEAL team is dead. But Holy crap, are you going where I think you're going with this one, man? I might be. 
Oh, okay, <laughs> there you go. Oh. But Curran and Hawkins' bodies have been preserved by the cold, Captain America style, and they are revived. After a few weeks of catch-up where they learn what's happened to the Earth over the past 200 years, they're at a crossroads. With no real career options for guys who are 200 years behind the times, they decide to stick with the military and sign up for the Colonial Marines. <laughs> with their Navy SEAL background, they're fast-tracked and given commissions, but they still have to go through training and get caught up with the technology. One day at the Colonial Marines training facility, Hawkins and Curran come across two soldiers named Hicks and Hudson. Curran comments on how Hudson looks just like the late Floyd God Dane, <laughs> while Hawkins motions at Hicks and says, Are you kidding me? This guy could be your grandson. The four of them chat for a minute, then go their separate ways, with Hicks and Hudson heading off to prep for a mission into deep space. <laughs> oh, I love it. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, when you said he went down in the ocean, I was thinking it was going to be like a Captain America kind of thing. Yeah. But I didn't think about that, taking them all the way up to aliens. Very good. Well, what's funny is like, I got the idea before it dawned on me that both Bill Paxton and Michael Bean were in Aliens. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? I just I had the idea first. Then afterwards, I was like, oh, well, I got to have them meet each other because, you know. <laughs> no, that's awesome. I like that. All right. Well, thanks. All right. Well, let's hear your immediate aftermath. Hawkins and the team now worked under orders from the man in the suit. They did various missions, rescue, sabotage, assassination, and more all over the world. They had been joined by other soldiers from different organizations, and they were also all given various injections and pills to increase their performance and abilities. At first, Hawkins had been wary of this, but as time went on, he forgot about those worries, and he now looked forward to each injection. He also found no problems with some of the more questionable aspects of their missions. The rest of the team felt the same. The man in the suit was happy with how things were proceeding. Then, on their most recent mission, Hawkins questioned his sanity. He was sure he had seen Curran alive and well at the enemy base they had just attacked. And that's my immediate aftermath. Interesting. It's funny. There's something There's something universal about the soldiers in your story here. <laughs> and I, I, there's yes. something, something that just seems to be tying them together. I can't put my finger on exactly what it is. but Yeah, but you know, you're all right in, uh, <laughs> yeah, in thinking that way, yeah. All right. Cool. Okay, what's happening then in the far future? Okay, well, two years later, Hawkins and Curran have become stars of the Colonial Marines. They've been on numerous missions together and have now put together a squad that resembles their original Navy SEAL team. They're sent into the most dangerous war zones and almost always come out unscathed. The combination of their 20th century military training and 22nd century technology is too much for almost any foe to handle. But there are rumors that a war is coming with an unstoppable force. It started with the loss of Hicks and Hudson's unit on LV-426. Then there's an incident at a prison station. Soon, with a number of mysterious incidents that show a clear path heading towards Earth, Hawkins and Curran are recruited to build a special task force. They go through the best of the best of the Colonial Marines and put together a veritable army of 50 or so soldiers that are nigh unbeatable. When the Xenomorph War hits Earth, it's the Colonial Marines SEALs unit that turns the tide and saves the planet. Whoa. That's my after the ending. Oh, I'd watch that. I'd watch yeah. the hell out of that. Yeah. <laughs> Me too, but thanks. Yeah. <laughs> That'd be fun. good. I mean, you could you could even, if you didn't, you could just make that as a standalone film as well. You wouldn't need to have, you, it'd be great having the Navy SEALs, you know, frozen in time as well. But you could also, they could do that with the alien films now. Just have a, you know. Focus on the Colonial Marines. Yeah. That'd be brilliant. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, excellent, though. I like, I like the ending. It was great. Thank you, thank you. All right, well, let's hear how yours pans out. Let's give us give us your long term. Okay, then. Well, Hawkins saw Curran at a few of the, the ops they were on, but he was always too far away to speak to him. Fearing it was all an hallucination, he spoke to the man in the suit. You're not going mad, said the man. Curran is alive, or the next best thing. He's part of our competitor's project, the Universal Soldier Program. Uh -huh. Hawkins couldn't believe that a group was resurrecting dead soldiers. They had to be stopped. 
The next mission saw Hawkins and his team successful, and they'd killed the insurgents, and HQ had reported a squad of Universal soldiers was inbound. Making sure his team was in position, Hawkins walked out to meet Curran. They nodded and cautiously approached each other. You look well for a dead guy, said Hawkins. You look like crap, said Curran. What are they doing to you? Just a daily dose of tiger blood to fight the good fight, said Hawkins. <laughs> Curran shook his head. It's messed with your mind. You're on the wrong side. Look at what you've done. Hawkins looked around. His drug-affected mind ignored the dead women and children lying on the ground. You're the dead freak who needs putting down, said Hawkins. Looking sad at what had happened to his friend, Curran simply said, God, take them all out. Uh. Hawkins heard the crack of the shot a moment before the bullet entered his head. And that's my after the ending for Navy Seals. I love it. I love that you resurrected uh, Bill Paxton's God character. That's fantastic. Oh, thank you very much. Very cool. Yeah. Awesome. Now, I, I, liked, I liked the fact we both went with other films as well, which could fit into the whole Navy Seals universe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. A lot of fun. Oh, I enjoyed that. All right, cool. All right, well, Phil, do you have any Navy Seals trivia for us? Yes, Michael Bean said working on the film was the worst experience of his life. Oh, really? Yes. That's unfortunate. That's, that's all I've got for that, though. Yeah. Uh, on the golf course scenes, a character, Rexa, is wearing a Martini Ranch t-shirt, and that was a band, an 80s rock band, and Bill Paxton was a member of that band. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah, which I thought was cool. And Paxton directed most of the golf sequence with his second unit crew. And Chief Dave, who was a real-life Navy SEAL, who played himself in the Active Valor movie, said this film inspired him to join the SEALs. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yes, that's, that's very cool. And that's, uh, that's Navy SEALs. Okay, well, that's Navy SEALs. Why don't we move on to The Sandlot? Yeah, so do you want to give us a rundown on what happens in The Sandlot? Yes, it's a little long. I tried to keep it short, but there's sort of a lot of little nuances that needed to get mentioned, so bear with yeah, me for a second. Yeah, it's like a coming-of-age story for lots of kids, isn't it? So. Yeah, yeah, just got to get mentions of a bunch of people and events in there. So, uh, All right, so The Sandlot, 1993, mostly starring unknowns, but with supporting roles by Dennis Leary and James Earl Jones. So, in the San Fernando Valley in 1962, Scotty Smalls is the new boy in the neighborhood trying to fit in. He tries to join a local Sandlot team, baseball team of various kids with names like Ham, Yaya, and Squints, but he's laughed off when it's revealed he can't play baseball. Benny the Jet Rodriguez, the de facto leader of the kids, takes Smalls under his wing and teaches him the sport. Scotty learns that Mr. Myrtle's house behind the Sandlot is the home of the Beast, a monstrous mastiff who eats thieves and baseballs alike. Or at least that's how the legend goes. When the team loses their ball to the Beast one day, Scotty borrows a ball from his stepfather's office, not knowing it's signed by Babe Ruth. Of course, the ball is quickly lost to the Beast. Smalls and the gang then scheme to get the ball back when Benny dons a pair of PF Flyers, shoes guaranteed to make him run faster and jump higher, or so they say. He scales the fence and gets the ball back, but he's chased by the Beast, who breaks free and chases Benny through town and back to the sandlot. When a fence collapses on the Beast and the kids save him, Mr. Myrtle comes out. He reveals that he used to be a baseball player, but was struck blind after being hit by a baseball, and he reveals that he knew Babe Ruth. So he trades Scotty's chewed-up Babe Ruth-signed ball for a ball signed by all of the 1927 Yankees, which Scotty gives to his stepfather. In the final scene of the film, we see that the kids continue playing baseball together, and the Beast, real name Hercules, becomes their mascot. And we learn what happens to the kids in the final voiceover. So yeah, yeah, joined the military and then helped develop bungee jumping. Squints grew up and married Wendy Peppercorn, 
and they have nine kids and she was involved in a pool scene with some kissing earlier in the film that I didn't get time to fit into my synopsis. <laughs> uh, Ham became a wrestler and Benny became a professional baseball player while Scotty became a sports broadcaster and they uh, clearly worked for the same team. And that is The Sandlot in a fairly large nutshell. No, very well done. And there is also a director DVD or video sequel, but it pretty much tells the same story, but with different kids. Yeah, there's actually two sequels, it turns out. There's a second ah. sequel direct-to-video, which also uh, it doesn't have much to do with the first one, although actually Squints, the kid, the guy who plays Squints, shows up playing the same character. But neither of the films have much to do with the original, and we don't count direct-to-video sequels as canon anyway. So Yeah, uh, and it's our show, and we can do it. That's, that's right. Yeah. We are working straight from The Sandlot. So, yeah. Phil, why don't you go ahead and launch, give us your day after. Okay. Hercules, a.k.a. the Beast, watched the small people play their game with the wooden stick and ball. As always, he had to fight his natural urge to chase after the ball. Instead, he watched his friends laughing and playing in the sun as he chewed on a bone. With each summer, there were less of his original group of friends, but he stayed keeping watch over them and Mr. Myrtle. He had to. There was something in the junkyard, something evil and ancient, and Hercules was sworn to make sure it never got free. And that's my day after. Uh, I love it. <laughs> I love how creative you get with stuff, Phil. Thank you. Thank you very much. Just just when you think sometimes, you, you know, you take a movie and you go, I don't know what I'm going to do with this ending. And then something creative like that comes up and it's a lot of fun. Okay. Thank you very much. But let's, uh, let's, let's hear your day after. All right. Well, I went a little more traditional, but here we go. After the incident with the baseball, Smalls and his stepfather start to bond. His stepdad starts teaching Smalls about the 1927 Yankees, and that shared interest allows their relationship to grow. They begin to start playing catch in the backyard, and a stepdad comes out to the sandlot and acts as sort of a coach-slash-booster for the kids. But soon, summer comes to an end, and the kids return to school. It's the first year of middle school, and things are different. Gone is the innocence of elementary school. Through it all, though, the sandlot guys remain tight. Other friends come and go, but not one of the sandlot kids turns their back on the others. That becomes especially important a few weeks into the school year, when Ham becomes the target of Butch Mathers, the school bully. God damn it, bullies. <laughs> God. Yep. Just, just when you think you get away from them, there's always another one. There's always another one. It's true. Uh, oh, excellent. I look forward to hearing what happens next. All right. Well, meanwhile, though, let's hear your immediate aftermath. Okay. Hercules was feeling his age, and he was worried. The ancient diamond ruin was weakening. The great evil was drawing closer, and Hercules did not have an apprentice to take over his task. Already, Hercules could feel the ancient evil influencing events in the town. People were getting angry and a nastiness was seeping him. Hercules did not know what to do. He was the sole protector of the town. He could not fail, but he did not know how much time he had left. Then one day he heard the call of Mr. Myrtle. He trotted off to see what he wanted. It was too early for his food. As he neared the house, he caught a new scent, and relief flooded him. It was a puppy. Hercules, said Mr. Myrtle, this is Goliath. And that's my immediate aftermath. Very cool. I like it. A little passing of the dog guard, if you will. Hmm. Indeed. What's happening then with your immediate aftermath? What's uh, what's going on with the bully? Well, Butch torments Ham every chance he gets, but every time he tries to get violent with him, the other Sandlot kids show up and protect him. As tough as he is, Butch can't take on eight kids at once. But eventually time wins out, and Butch catches Ham alone and beats him up pretty badly. The other kids are furious. Mm. Benny wants to march right out and fight Butch one-on-one, -on -one, but Smalls talks him out of rushing out and doing anything rash. Butch is a big kid, and Smalls is worried that he might actually be able to take Benny in a fight although he doesn't tell Benny that. Instead, Smalls tells Ham and Benny and the rest of the Sandlot kids that he has a plan to get revenge. Oh, excellent. 
Oh, like when a group of kids have a plan. Yeah, yes. Yeah. They're going to feed them to Pennywise. <laughs> oh, diff- different different group of kids. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <Excellent>. <laughs> Although now I wish I had thought of that earlier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would have been fun. Uh, All right. Uh, well, let's hear your your long term. I want to hear about this uh, this evil force and this new puppy. Okay, then. Hercules wasted no time in beginning Goliath's training. Every dog knew that they were mankind's only protection from the darkness that hovered just outside of this reality. Hercules explained how the large diamond rune that the little humans used was the main power keeping this particular evil ancient one at bay. But it was weakening as it did every few cycles. The evil was bound to get out, so it was up to Hercules and Goliath to be ready. Sooner than expected, the evil escaped, but the two dogs were ready. The large twisted creature could smell the town full of fresh souls, but then it gagged as the smell of dogs filled its world. Unsheathing long claws and fangs, it howled to the sky and ready for battle. If there had been any witnesses to the epic fight that followed, all they would have seen were the two dogs running around the junkyard, as the evil thing was not visible to the human eye. Even odder was the fact that the dogs made barely a sound. They fought long and hard, wearing the creature down. All the while they thought of the poor humans who would suffer if they failed. Eventually they were triumphant. The evil one was pushed back to the darkness and the ancient ritual completed, locking it away for many more cycles. Goliath held in happiness but then turned as he heard a sigh behind him. Hercules lay on the ground. They had won the battle, but he had been mortally wounded. I'll get help, said Goliath. No, my friend, it is too late for me, said Hercules. You fought well, but be forever vigilant. I am proud of you. Good dog. Saying the highest honour any dog could give another, Hercules breathed his last. The town was saved. That's my long term. Aw, I like that. Both action-packed and moving at the same time. Thank you. I just thought it'd go a totally different way. Yeah, I love focus that. Focus on the dog. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that's great. Yeah. Oh, I'm glad you like it. Oh, very much. So that was my that was my long term. What's happening then with yours? What's their plan? All right. Well, the plan worked perfectly. It wasn't easy to rig things so that Butch ended up wearing a pink prom dress in front of the entire school, <laughs> but they pulled it off. <laughs> the Sandlot kids rejoice in their victory, and Ham's feelings are buoyed, as it proves that the Sandlot kids have each other's backs. The next day, however, Butch shows up to school with two black eyes and a broken arm and a sling. All of the Sandlot kids notice, and when they meet up after school, they get to talking about it. Smalls and the gang realize that Butch is probably a bully because his dad is an abusive bully at home. Uh Benny suggests inviting Butch to come play ball at the Sandlot this weekend, and the kids all agree with him except for Ham, who's still smarting from getting beat up. He storms off the lot and heads home. The next day at school, the entire group of Sandlot kids except for Ham approach Butch. Butch assumes they're there to kick his ass, and he starts taunting them. But Ham shows up, puts out his hand, and says, Truce? Butch looks at him suspiciously, hesitates, then reaches out and shakes Ham's hand. And that's the end. Oh, I really like that. Yeah, thanks. I thought it was like a way to, you know, they get a new kid in the Sandlot and, you know, maybe somebody who who needed to turn a new leaf. And joining the Sandlot kids would would help him do that. Yeah, and it's moving the story on. The good thing I quite like, though, is, both or after the endings could have actually been happening at the same time. That's true. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it could yeah. be the same film. One big mega epic yeah. of of schmaltz and, uh, you know, special effects. Yeah. Wow. It's a good name for a podcast. Schmaltz and special effects. Sh- schmaltz is special <laughs> <laughs> It is, actually. Like Copyright, that. trademark, Mike Springfield, Edwards, 2017. That's it. It's ours. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think it's time to visit the trivia lot. Oh, okay. I'll let that one go. Well, there's not a lot I could do with this week's titles. <laughs> yeah, so. no, yeah. uh, the older and younger Benny were played by real-life brothers, Pablo and Mike Vitar. Oh, cool. Uh, the film was shot in 42 days. The uh, The vomit that was used in the ride scene was made from split pea soup, 
baked beans, oatmeal, and some water. Uh, hmm, sure. So there you go, people. You want to make a movie? You want yeah. need some fake farmers? There you <laughs> right. go. Uh, Dennis Leary is a fan of the Boston Red Sox and hates the Yankees, so you know he had to really act for this one. <laughs> right. Uh, and writer and director David Evans was the narrator of the film, and that's the sound lot. It's a great film. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's as always these baseball films. Even though I'm not a fan of the sport itself. The, uh, the film's usually pretty good. Yeah, agreed. And this, like you said, is more of a coming-of-age film. It's you know, it's a good comedy. Yeah. And it introduced the phrase, you're killing me, Smalls, into the lexicon, which I think we can thank it for that. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And there's a good, the good little... Uh, the actors they got to find the kids were really good. Yeah, it's a good ensemble of, of kid actors, yeah. which isn't always easy to put together. Definitely. But yeah, if you haven't seen it, uh, track it down and give it a watch. Indeed. All right, well, that wraps up our uh, After the Endings for Navy Seals and The Sandlot. Let's move on then to 100 Years of Hollywood in 100 Episodes, wherein we take a year from the past century of Hollywood and share our top 10 movies. And this week we are talking about 1965. So, Phil, climb into that time machine of yours and tell us what the world was like back in the swinging 60s. Well, yes, 1965, the UK Prime Minister was Harold Wilson and the US President was Lyndon B. Johnson. We saw the launch of Gemini 2 into space. Lots of different things going up into space because, you know, the space race was in full swing. Uh, we had the state funeral of Sir Winston Churchill. English footballers, uh, soccer, you know, for you, you people in America. But English footballer Sir Stanley Matthews played his final first division game at the age of 50. So he was a true legend. That's pretty old for a soccer player. Yeah, it is. Uh, the red and white maple leaf design was inaugurated as the flag of Canada. Uh, Joan Rivers made her Tonight Show debut. Uh, we had the sadly we had the Bloody Sunday in Selma, Alabama, during the various uh, peace marches with Martin Luther King. Uh, Three thousand five hundred U.S. Marines arrived in Vietnam, and there was the first U.S. combat troops on the ground. Yeah, we had the, the Vietnam War was going on as well, so you know. Everything's lousy, everything's good, every single year, so what are you going to do? Uh, cosmonaut Alexei Lenar became the first person to walk in space, and NASA launched Gus Grissom and John Young into Earth orbit. But it was all part of the plan, they just didn't do it for the hell of it. Right. Uh, we had the first skateboard championship taking place. Bob Dylan went electric at the Newport Folk Festival and really made a lot of people angry doing that. Yeah, uh, it's, 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 it's phenomenal how many people got just wanted him, you know, couldn't believe he'd done it. Uh, the Beatles performed the first stadium concert in the history of music. Wow. That was at Shea Stadium, and the audience was 55,600 people. And you probably couldn't hear anything the Beatles did because everybody was screaming the whole time. Right. And in, on UK TV, we saw the debut of Thunderbirds. Oh, cool. So that was some of the things that happened. And also we had the births of Julia Ormond, Vinnie Jones, Rob Zombie, James Nesbitt, DJ Jazzy Jeff, Alan Cumming, Diane Lane, Brandon Lee, Michael Bay. Sarah Jessica Parker, John C. Riley, Dr. Dre, J.K. Rowling, Sam Mendes, Frank Grillo, uh, Robert Downey Jr. and John Cryer. And sadly, we had the deaths of Nat King Cole, Malcolm X, T.S. Eliot, Stan Laurel, Edward R. Murrow, Fred Quimby, and Clara Bow. Okay, an event fill year. And that was 1965. All right, cool. Yeah, so that was the year that was. So, but what films have you got in your top 10? All right. Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I've I've got five. The, the first five you're going to hear are movies that I want to see, and the second five are the ones I have seen. So my number ten is Von Ryan's Express. 
It is a World War II action epic starring Frank Sinatra. Uh, and it's one of those movies I've always heard really good things about. It has one of the coolest movie posters ever. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go go look it up because I can't show you, obviously, as podcasting is an audio format. And the worst part is I've had it in my collection for years and I've just never gotten around to actually watching it. So uh, I really have no excuse. But I do want to see that and uh, hopefully it's cool. Yeah. No, it is a good film. It's worth watching. It didn't make my list, but it is a good one. It's always mad seeing Frank Sinatra. In those kind of films. Yeah, yeah, but he was yes, good in, yeah. in many of them. So. Oh, yeah, he was, he was a good actor. Yeah. Did some really good things, yep. yeah. Okay, my number 10 is a film by Sidney Lumet, and it's uh, The Hill, which is uh, basically set in a British uh, a British Army prison in North Africa during the Second World War. And we've got Sean Connery and Harry Andrews and a, another cast, but it's it's basically about a group of prisoners who are at odds with the, you know, the prison wardens and the, the guards, and they're forced to climb a man-made hill in the centre of camp and, and one of them dies and then there's a power struggle going on but it's really uh, Sean Connery had this you know had quite a few dark serious films which you know would, which weren't what you would expect really from you know James Bond and stuff like that but this was one of them uh, it's really good extremely well acted it's a bit of a downer but it's 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 worth watching, but it's such a it's it's a small story, but dealing with big issues. Very cool. I can't say it's a film I'm familiar with, but I will certainly try. Yeah, and I can't remember. It it's 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 not one which is often mentioned, and I, I think I came across it, you know, in a magazine or a documentary or something, and I, I tracked it down. I think it might have been on late one night. All right, cool. Well, my number nine is the Cincinnati Kid, which stars Steve McQueen and Edward G. Robinson as rival poker players. Uh, and I, Edward G. Robinson is a favorite of mine. Chances are good if he's in a movie, I'm going to want to see it. Uh, of course, Steve McQueen is a classic as well. And I like poker movies or card playing movies, even though it's not the most visually interesting yeah. medium in the world. I, I do always have a soft spot for them. And uh, this one just sort of sounds like kind of a, a take on like the Hustler. You know, or that type of movie. You know, the, yeah. the the young coming up pro and the you know and the old grizzled veteran going at it. Who's gonna Who's gonna prevail? And I just like films like that. So good cast, good concept. Uh, I'll take it any day. No, that's a, yeah, it's, that's another good film as well. But I just say that's a cracking actors in that one. Yeah, for sure. Okay, my number nine is uh, the City Under the Sea. Stars Vincent Price, and it's uh, it's a good one. It's a bit. Almost, it's it's like a mix of Edgar Allan Poe and, and Lovecraft. Some people they end up finding this, uh, they get sucked into this pool and get taken to this city, which has been built on the ocean floor by these ancient fish people. And uh, Vincent Price is the captain who sort of holds him prisoner, and there's a volcano which is going to erupt at any time. But it's one of those ones where the film starts off with these people who discover this strange place, and we're discovering it with them. And I love that in a film where they just, you know, you're not sure it's this all this ancient structure, and you don't know what's going on, and you're learning with them and then suddenly, you know, the bad guy turns up and things happen. And it's it's got some lousy special effects, it's got some good special effects, but it's uh Vincent Price is always cool and it's it's just a good a good uh, suspenseful story. I did see that one uh, as I was, you know, looking at the films, but it is not one that I have seen, unfortunately. Yeah, it's one of those ones which always used to be on uh, BBC Two over here all the time, you know, like right. on a weekend and things like that, and you'd catch bits of it. Excellent. All right, well, my number eight is The Alphabet Murders, which sees Tony Randall starring as Hercule Poirot, star of the new Murder on the Orient Express, not star, of course, character <laughs> in it, yeah. but uh, I'm a big fan of Agatha Christie. Uh, I, I, I don't know the Poirot stories as much as I would like to, but The Alphabet Murders, of course, is one of her more well-known books. Uh, this is an adaptation of it. Tony Randall is a great actor. Uh, what's not to like? So that's my number eight. No, perfect. Yeah, it's uh, I've not seen that one myself, but uh, I do like. Uh, as you say, I'm like you. I like the Agatha Christie story, so I'll I'll get around to that at some point. Yeah. Uh, okay, my number eight is Doctor Who and the Daleks. And for those of you who are only aware of the TV show, especially in recent years, 
obviously there was it's you know it was a TV show many many years ago with lots of other doctors, but there was also a couple of TV films. No, I think they were released on the cinema. Sorry, there, uh, where they had Peter Cushing as Doctor Who. So it's a little bit out of the uh, out of you know the canon of the the TV shows. I'm not sure whether they've ever brought them in to be honest, connected them in some way. But yeah, this one it's basically Doctor Who and his two granddaughters, Susan and Barbara, along with her boyfriend, go to. Uh, end up going in the TARDIS and end up in this place where there's like this weird jungle and there's there's Daleks uh, building some kind of structure and getting into, you know, Dalek shenanigans, all the shiny floors, things like that. But there's also a race of people living on this planet where they are who are going to get killed. And it's uh, it's good. I was like the Daleks. They were one of the best Doctor Who ones. And uh, Peter Cushing is pretty cool. Uh, there was a few lousy comedy bits uh, that they often seem to chew on in, in the old 1960s films but this one it's uh it's it still stands up you know it's from for what it is and I, I do always find it quite enjoyable sure I, I would like to see that myself uh, I do have to say side note too though that Dalek shenanigans sounds like another good podcast title copyright trademark 2017 <laughs> yeah. Mike Dalek shenanigans. yeah <laughs> oh my god yeah yeah right it's got a ring to it yeah 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 all right, my number seven is The Flight of the Phoenix, starring one James Stewart, and it is about a plane that crashes in the desert and how the people on the plane survive. And uh, they did a remake a while back with Dennis Quaid, which I also really wanted to see. Haven't seen either of them, and I don't know what it is. I really want to see both of these films. I'm sure the remake isn't as good, but uh, I love survival stories. I love Jimmy Stewart. Uh, so this is one I've been meaning to track down for a while, and I just haven't come across it and had a chance to watch it yet. So that's yeah, my the, number seven. The original, it is a brilliant film uh, and the, the remake i mean it didn't didn't do that well but i, I it, it did okay it did exactly what it needed to do i didn't see that really there was any need for it but no it, that was okay right. as well yeah right cool okay my number wait, wait, my number seven is dr shivago david lean classic julie christie and omar sharif tom courtney and a whole loads of familiar faces big big story all about you know pre World War One when Russia during the Re Russian Revolution and it's basically Julie Christie and Omar Sharif's characters falling in love, falling apart, all that kind of stuff. It's a big. It, it would have. It's a. It's a beautifully shot film. It looks amazing. It'd be a bit higher on my list, but I do find parts of it just seem to drag on a bit. It is stunningly made, and the, the scene with the uh, the ice house is just incredible. That is a good pick. So good, in fact, that is my number six. Yes. You know, and this is, like I said earlier, how there wasn't that many big movies that I feel like I should have seen that were on my list of movies I wanted to see. Well, this is the one. It's it's obviously, it was a huge hit. Uh, I think I actually read that as of 2016, when adjusted for inflation, it was still one of the top 10 films, highest grossing films of all time. Wow. I don't know for sure that that's true, but that's what the internet tells me. And of course, if it's on the internet, it can't be a lie. So, uh, but regardless of whether that's 100% accurate or not, clearly the film was a monster hit and uh, it's still referenced in, in a lot of film critiques and, you know, literary circles around films. So it's just one that I feel like I should see, I should yeah, at least watch yeah. Yeah. to have in my repertoire. So that's my number six. Okay, my number six is The Sound of Music, produced and directed by Robert Wise, Julie Andrews, Christopher Plummer. You know, you don't often get films involving a, a singing fam, family, a singing nun, and the Nazis. So this this one... <laughs> no, this, you really don't. Yeah. So if we ever do a list of those films, you know, top five list, this probably be my number one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, it's, uh, it's, it's one of them. It gets a lot of flack sometimes, but it is a, it's a classic musical, uh, and lots of the songs... It's not even a musical just for the sake of having a musical. It does sort of fit in, really, because... Lots of, the, lots of the songs are just the family singing because that's what they do. But then you have uh, you have Julie Andrews being brilliant, uh, Christopher Plummer being a bit, you know, 
bit of an arse, but then, you know, melting, as it were, and, you know, opening his heart. And then you have the whole got to escape over the mountain. So it's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. I don't think you can go too wrong with one of the most beloved films of all time. All right, well, my number five, and now we're getting into the movies that I've seen, uh, is The Great Race, starring Jack Lemmon, Tony Curtis, and Natalie Wood. Sort of a precursor uh, from a more innocent time to movies like The Cannonball Run. Uh, It's about a a big, great race, (laughs) and it's a lot of fun. It has been a long time since I've seen it, so I will not expound too much upon it, but I do remember seeing it as a kid and really enjoying it, so that's why it's my number five. That's a good choice. Uh, It's a great... Yeah, there was a few of those kind of films with all those stars in, and I, I always enjoy watching them, but I always feel like there's a... They're a little bit flabby sometimes. You know, they have like lots of extraneous scenes which never really needed, which sort of take me out of it a bit. But it's been a long time since I've seen that one. Yeah, I mean, that, like I said, it, I'm sure that's accurate, but I haven't seen it in such a long time. I can't really comment on that, unfortunately. Oh, cool, cool, cool. Uh, okay, my number five is The Bedford Incident, which is a great uh, Cold War movie. Uh, and it's basically about an American destroyer, the USS Bedford, trying to uh, track down a Soviet submarine. And it's the captain, Richard Widmark, becomes a bit obsessed by it and he's also got uh, Sidney Poitier on as a who's a journalist a photojournalist who's who's trying to get a story out of it and it's all stressful and they're chasing down this this submarine and you know the cat and mouse kind of thing going on and it's it's really good you see this obsession take over Richard Wood Mark's character and it's uh, you're not quite sure where it's going to go and yeah it's worth just watch it because it's you start thinking it's going to go one way and then it might and it might not, but it's worth... I don't want to say any more without spoiling it, but it's the Bedford incident. It's well worth checking out. Another one I can't say I'm familiar with, but yeah. I do. I do. It sounds like my cup of tea, so I will definitely track that one down. Yeah, because uh, with Mark and Poitier, are just brilliant in it. Oh, yeah. Great cast. All right. Well, my number four is uh, the musical comedy of the Beatles, and it is Help. Ah, the feeling will be on yours, yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, it's not as good a film as A Hard Day's Night, which to me is really a true classic, One, regardless of whether you like the Beatles or not. It's a really funny film. Um, this one is a little bit more silly, a little more goofy. Uh, it's, you know, but it's still got some really great music, and that is one of my favorite Beatles albums. And I just I just love, you know, John, Paul, George, and Ringo on screen, and they're, they're their screen personas that are sort of like caricatures of their real personalities. Yeah, yeah. This is the first sort of, you know, adventure plot-driven film for them. But it's a lot of fun. You know, it doesn't hold up as well as I, as much as I loved it when I was a kid, but I, I still give the Beatles, uh, you know, a fair shot any, any time of the day. So it makes my list. Right, that's cool. Yeah, it's one of those ones. I enjoy watching it, but yeah, it doesn't... Uh, it's a bit cheesy and things like that, but no. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's got some classic moments, you know, them out in the snow and doing the, the semaphore, yeah, yeah, you know, help yeah. and all that it's got, stuff. It does have I some mean, classic imagery in it, yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, my uh, my number four is Alphaville, directed by Jean-Luc Godard, stars Eddie Constantine and Anna Karina. Uh, and it's basically a sci-fi film. Well, it's like a, a film noir detective, uh, Lemmy Caution, who's got to go into uh, Alphaville and uh, destroy the evil computer Alpha 60, who's outlawed th- free thought and individual concepts like love, poetry and emotion. It's one of those ones, but it's uh, Jean-Luc Godard, French New Wave, so it's very stylish. It's set in the future, but they basically, what they did was, uh, it was all shot in real locations in Paris, so the nighttime streets of the city were the streets of Alphaville, and they used modernist glass and concrete buildings, which were which were new and weird in 1965. They were the city's interior, so it's it's kind of futuristic, but it isn't at the same time when you watch it, but it's it's got some, it's all black and white. It's beautifully shot, as you'd expect with Jean-Luc Godard. You got these brilliant actors who can do so much by not saying anything and just standing and looking at each other and you know glance to the side and things like that. And it's it's just a cool story as well because it's uh, it's a bit 
you know, it's not a big action-packed thing, but it's, it is a sci-fi film directed by Jean-Luc Godard, which is probably about as weird as you'd expect, but it's got some <laughs> lovely touches, uh, and it's just, it's worth, even if you're not really expecting or you're not a fan of those kind of films, it's worth watching if you're a fan of film just because of some of the imagery and things like that, and you'll probably see the influence it's had on other films since then. An excellent choice. Uh, not a film that I have seen yet. So uh, as we know, my my Godard and some of those French New Wave directors, my my viewing filmography on them is a little lacking still. So. Yeah, well, it's, one of, to it. it's one of those ones where I think often as you're growing up as well, you go, oh, when am I going to watch that? And then you're going, oh, you just keep putting it off. And then when you do eventually watch it, you go, wow, that was brilliant. Right, but right. Yeah, but it's, you, you do end up putting them. I've, I've got loads of those kind of films where I go, yeah, I'll have to give it a watch at some point. But, but you get around to it eventually. Yep, yep, I'll get there. All right, well, my number three is a film that has already appeared on your list. It is The Sound of Music. Aha, yes. You know, I'm not a huge musical fan, but like you said, the music in this one works. Some of those songs are so classic. I mean, you can sing them in your sleep. And, uh, you know, Julie Andrews, Christopher Plummer are great. It's it's a classic for a reason, and it's a film that I do enjoy. So that's my number three. Oh, no, well, that's an excellent choice. And my number three is also a musical, but this one is a, a Western musical. It's Cat Baloo. Oh, yes, right. It stars Jane Fonda and Lee Marvin. Uh, who won an Academy Award for his role in that. Uh, it's just, it's a silly, funny Western, all about uh, Cat Baloo, who's Jane Fonda, and she just gets mixed up in a few, you know, have I said shenanigans already? Was that Dalek shenanigans? Dalek, that was a while ago. You yeah. can get away with that. Uh, she gets up to all sorts of shenanigans, and we've got uh, Lee Marvin, who just does wonderful things as this total, you know, this legendary gunfighter who's just a drunk, and he also plays the bad guy. Uh, he's got a funny nose, metal nose, but uh, no, it's just it's it's just mad funny, and it's it's a cool little western as well. You know, it's a classic western story. Um, I remember my friend Jane introduced me to the film at university, and it's uh, oh, you also you've also got uh, Nat King Cole and Stubby Kane. It's they're actually in the film. They're like playing minstrels as they walk around singing, and they keep popping up all over the place, you know, narrating and singing what's going on. But it's uh, it's a real good fun film. And if you haven't seen it, it's a good one to watch on a Sunday with the family. Well, this will come as a surprise to you, Phil, but I haven't seen it. so ah. <laughs> I know, I know. All right, well, my number two is another Agatha Christie story, actually. And it is Ten Little Indians, starring Hugh O'Brien and Shirley Eaton. Um, also known, uh, but the story itself is also known as And Then There Were None. Uh, yeah, but this is yeah. the film version. And this is the movie that got me into Agatha Christie, actually. I remember... Yeah, it's a good film. You yeah. know, when I, when I saw this as a kid... Uh, I had uh, I had little exposure to her, but I was just blown away by this this great story and this cool ending that it had and everything. And uh, I, this has hands down always been my favorite Agatha Christie story. And I don't know if that's just because it's the one that got me into her, or just because it's that good. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it really is that good, and and it's a pretty good film version of it as well. So not a lot of big names in it, uh, but really worth watching nonetheless. No, you're right. It is a good story. I mean, it's been remade. Yeah, but that was the uh, that one you mentioned. That was a good film. Yeah. Okay, my number two is The Ipcrest File, which stars Michael Caine as uh, Harry Palmer. It's a classic uh, British crime thriller. I mean, he's basically, Harry Palmer's like a, not, well, I suppose he's a secret agent, but he's like a spy kind of thing. It's more like the realistic kind of spy, you know, walking around, watching people, you know, trying to be unobtrusive and things like that. It's not a James Bond kind of spy, but it's uh, he's tasked with finding a, a kidnapped scientist and then gets mixed up in all sorts of strange goings on revolving around the Ipcrest file. But uh, I won't say any more because it's, I remember watching it the first time and I had no idea where it was going to go and it was just, blew me away. Great film. Yeah, I mean, that's another one that's, uh, that is one of the big films that I, I haven't seen. Actually, I don't know why it didn't make my top five. 
of or my top ten of films I want to see because I haven't seen it. Um, but I, I do need to get around to it. I know that those sort of Michael Caine sixties, yeah, you know, yeah. British films are are very well loved for a reason. So, yeah. all right. Well, my number one, uh, number very one little surprise here. Very little surprise here for longtime listeners and and for you, I'm sure. It is. Thunderball, yeah, yeah, of course, James yeah. Bond, 007, starring Sean Connery, and you know it's it's not one of the best James Bond films, although it's not one of the worst either. Um, but it it might have come in lower on a list if it had been a year where I'd seen more movies. But when I looked at the the, the few movies that I'd seen, obviously the one film on this list that I I you know kind of really count as a favorite, well, Ten Little Indians also, but you know Thunderball, James Bond was going to win out just because it was James Bond, and it's a lot of fun for me. So. Uh, that's my number one. Not the world's most inspired pick, but you know, not every not every year can be a winner. That's that's fine. That's a, an excellent choice. Didn't make my list, but my number one is for a few dollars more. Directed by Sergio Leone and Clint Eastwood, and I think probably didn't make your list because it was released over in the US in 1967. Yeah, that it gets murky with those. That yeah. whole trilogy gets murky. In terms yeah, they of always have weird dates. And, they made it with different yeah. things like this, but it's uh, it's my number one for this year, and it's uh, you know got Lee Van Cleef. And Gian Maria Valente as the main bad guy, and it's the one with the watch, and it's cool, stylish. We've got Clint Eastwood as the man with no name, doing what he does so well. And it's, uh, yeah, so it's a hell of a trilogy that was, you know, for a fistful of dollars, for a few dollars more, and the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, wow, imagine making those three films. Yeah, yeah. pretty incredible. But that's it, uh, that's 1965. That is it. It's uh, you know, not not to me one of the more banner years in yeah, our yeah. in our you know look back here, but obviously some good films. I'm sure there's others that we haven't seen that other people you know yeah. love. So uh, if there are films that we've left off our lists, drop us a line. Let us know what they were. Yeah, definitely because as we said, lots of good films, but none which sort of you know yeah, none of the ones which make you go wow. Really. Right, it wasn't a blow me away yeah. kind of movie year. Yeah, but it was 1965, and you know. That's what happens sometimes. Well, next week we're going to discuss another year of movies, and I'm sure it'll be an interesting one. Phil, why don't you tell people what year that is and what movies we're going to give endings for? Yes, we're going to bring it a bit closer to you know modern day. Uh, next week we're going to be doing our top 10 favorite films of 2013. That should be fun. Always fun to revisit the recent memory. Yeah, and you think it's only yesterday, but I mean, that's like four years ago, isn't it? Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Um, we'll also be going after the ending of Swiss Family Robinson, and Misery. Yes, Misery just came out in a new Blu-ray edition with a ton of extra features, so that's really cool. A little tie-in there, but uh, that should be fun to revisit some some Stephen King, some Kathy Bates, and then The Swiss Family Robinson, which is a bit of a personal favorite of mine. Yeah, I mean, those two films, wow, what a double feature. <laughs> Imagine that. You put uh, Swiss Family Robinson on, and then Misery, and you watch it with somebody who's never seen Misery before. They just be going, <laughs> what have you done to me? <laughs> right, exactly. Well, it's, uh, it should be a lot of fun, and we hope that you will join us then. Uh, until that time, as always, we thank you greatly for listening. I'm Mike Spring. And I'm Phil Edwards. And we'll see you next week. After the ending. And I'm Phil Edwards. And Phil, I... Yeah. I didn't even think of an intro for this one. Yeah, me neither. Um, <laughs> Clearly. I'm having trouble reading what I've done. I need to put another light on. Hold on. No problem. Whoa. That's better. Just out of curiosity, were you were you angry at that light? I was. Okay. Why? Because it sounded like you were like, Grah! and like flicking on the light switch, like, Grah! 
I was punching it. That's how I switch on lights. I just punch <laughs> them until we go. Just walk around the house. You're like, honey, can you turn the light on? You're like, sure thing. Yeah. <laughs> like punch the wall. What the hell are you doing, Switch? <laughs> right. That's it. There's, there's just dented wall panels all over your house. If it's a table lamp, though, I just usually punch them off the table and the bulb smashes. So maybe I need to change my thinking. Just a that. thought. Just a thought. Maybe yeah. you want to re- reassess far, that. Yeah, right. Why not? You don't, you don't want to see me try and switch on a TV. <laughs> Oh, I'm glad you like it. Oh, very much. Well, that's uh, that's the sandlot. Nope, I got to do my long term still. Oh yeah, Christ! That's what I was waiting it? for you for. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally confused. <laughs> I don't know why you keep okay, trying to then. rush me off, dude? I know. Okay, play, then, uh, play him off, keyboard cat. No. <laughs> so I just need to. Human typing on computer. Yeah, there's just I just realized I haven't got something for the next bit. Oh. Do you not have a top ten movies? Because it might take more than a second to put that together. <laughs> no, that's all right. Well, I have a piece of trivia if you want to hear it. It has nothing nothing to do with this whatsoever, but it's kind of interesting. So, okay. so okay. Uh, I was doing some research on aliens. I wanted to check my timeline to make sure it worked. And so I was at one point trying to incorporate a, a mention of something from Alien Resurrection. And I realized yeah. I had forgotten it takes place like 200 years after Aliens. So it didn't work in including it into my into my ending. Oh, yeah. But, gosh, yeah, but yeah. as I'm so then I went down the Internet rabbit hole, you know, just started reading up on Alien Resurrection because I, something caught my eye. and started reading. So um, as I'm as I'm reading through, I get to the set passage about its box office success. And it says it it opened to like twenty five million dollars in the U.S. and it debuted at number two. This is Alien Resurrection. Yeah. Wow. Do you know what the number one movie that beat Alien Resurrection at the opening weekend of the box office was? Oh, what year was it? 97, I think. 97. Oh. No, I don't know. Go. It was Flubber. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously? I kid you not, dude. I was hysterical. Oh, my God. I was not expecting that at all. I'm just sitting there. It's like, it debuted to $25 million, went on to gross $47 million. It was de- number two. It was beaten by number one at the box office, Flubber. And I just about burst out Holy laughing. Holy crap. <laughs> for, for long-term listeners, you'll know why we're... We find it's very funny. Yes, and Those newer listeners, you'll just have to, to you'll have wow. to go back because there's no way to explain it. But I, wow. oh man, I was dying. <laughs>